go, are you ready this morning? Yes. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We'll look at verses 1 through 11. Now, if you remember two weeks ago, we examined the relationship between law and grace. And yes, there is one. But we also noted we need to make a distinction between the ceremonial law of Moses and the law of God or the moral code of God contained in the Ten Commandments. Now, we learn that the ceremonial laws are called the Hakim or the Chukah in Hebrew, which means the national customs or national statutes. And their purpose was to draw the adherence to the law's attention to their need for a blood sacrifice because of their wickedness or uncleanness. Now, the ceremonies also pointed back, much like the Passover, to the exodus of Egypt and the reminder that God has been at work on behalf of the nation of Israel. Other components of it, like circumcision, dietary, and clothing restrictions were meant to distinguish the Israelites from the pagan nations of the world. And the Sabbath, Passover, and other feast days were pointing to the coming Messiah. Now, we also noted the oft-overlooked reality that grace predated the law by some 1,500 years because Genesis 6, 5 says, Noah found what? Grace. grace in the eyes of the Lord. We also found the truth that justification by faith also predated the law by 430 years when Abraham believed God, believing God is faith, and it was accounted unto him as righteousness, which is justification, having righteousness put into our account. Now the ceremonial law was for the Jews, and the Ten Commandments are the measure by which all are judged and identified as someone needing a Savior, or in other words, a sinner. Now, in Romans 7, 7 to 12, we're told, what shall we say then is the law of sin? We looked at this two weeks ago. Paul's answer? Certainly not. Certainly not. On the contrary, he says this about the law. I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire or covetousness. For apart from the law... Sin was dead. In other words, the law is necessary for sin to be a reality. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring what? Death. death. The wages of sin is? Death. death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Now, the Bible tells us we're all sinners. The Bible tells us Christ came into the world to save sinners. Therefore, sin has to be defined, and that's the role of the law of God today. Now, we made three points last time in relation to the law-grace relationship, and they were the law and grace are companions, not contradictions. We found that keeping the commandments of God won't save your soul. Amen? Amen. But it will save you a lot of heartache and shame. And the law is what makes grace so amazing. Because the law tells all of us we're messed up. But Jesus saved us anyway. Now, Jesus having fulfilled the law, meaning he never sinned, therefore reminding us the standard by which Jesus could be identified as sinless was the law. So if we argue that we measure ourselves against God and not the law, 
Jesus' sinlessness was proven by the law, just as our sinfulness is proven by the law. Now, we're not under the law, but as sinners, we're still measured against the Ten Commandments, proving we need a Savior. Now, Paul this morning is going to continue an illustration he began in chapter 3, where he, he introduced the word tutor. It's the Greek word paedagogos, and it refers to a household slave who was responsible for the discipline of the master's children from five or six up until somewhere around puberty. And around the age of puberty, at the father's choosing, a very public ceremony would take place in which the child, specifically a firstborn child, would be publicly recognized as a son and therefore a man and thus the heir. They would be given a toga to wear and therefore it was called a toga ceremony. We see this portrayed in the story of the prodigal son. Now, Paul, having established that we've been adopted, will then move in verse 6 from illustration to application, which reminds us that all the illustrations and parables in the Bible are actionable. In other words, they're telling us how to do something or what we ought to do. They're not simply to inform us or strictly to bring clarity to an issue. Now, what Paul begins to describe to the erring Galatians is our title today and as is often true with our titles, and you guys know I love titles, it's a play on words. So be careful how you write it down. You need to write it down like it's going to be on the screen. And this morning our subject and title is The Afterlife. Not the afterlife one word, but the afterlife. Just like that. Now, we've all seen the before and after photos of people, right? when some type of transformation that's dramatic has taken place and some will show the before picture and then the after picture. And Paul is going to make the case that after we've been adopted, we've been radically changed. We are far different than what we used to be. And much like the hymn, Amazing Grace pictures that very thing for us, the before and after. Before it says, I once was lost. The after picture says, but now I'm Found. The before picture says I was blind. The after picture says, but now I see. So what does the afterlife look like for us once we've been adopted through being born again, having once been children of wrath? We'll find our usual three answers to this very important inquiry this morning. And we'll start with Galatians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 5. So would you stand and read with me, please? Galatians 4, 1 through 5. Verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of, his, of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And Lord, we are so thankful for this passage. We are thankful, Lord, that we do have something that tells us why uh, our need for a Savior and even the condemnation of the unjust and unrighteous is pure and is not disproportionate. So Lord, thank you for giving us a standard by which to measure ourselves that reminds us 
that not only did we need a Savior, we still do. So teach us, Lord, about what the afterlife looks like for all of us now that you have adopted us and called us your children. We give you thanks for our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, by linking everything we've learned thus far together, we, can, uh, we need to remember that Paul is talking about life after being under the law. And his illustration, therefore, was culturally relevant. Everybody would understand it. Because under the Roman Empire's authority, this practice of tutoring was not just common, it was the norm. It happened in nearly every household. And Paul says, listen Galatians, you foolish Galatians, think about it like this. A child might be the eventual heir of the father's fortune, but as a child, he is under the tutelage of another who has authority over him for the time being, but that one with authority is later going to be his servant at the appointed time set by the Father. He says, what you're doing by going back to the rituals and observances of the law is like having been publicly adopted by your Father in the adrogatio, uh, which is the word for the uh, uh, toga ceremony, but then choosing to go back under the authority of a tutor. And the adragatio was essentially a transfer of power when it came to the firstborn son from parent to child. And Paul is saying you have chosen to return to living under the law and you've rejected living in power. And in Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, Paul would write this to the church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spirit. Aren't you glad it says every? Yes. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to what? Adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us. Here's one of my favorite descriptions of the afterlife, accepted in the beloved. We are accepted by the Father in Christ Jesus, his beloved son. And Paul says, like a father does for his appointed heir, when it was time, God did the same thing for us by sending his son to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. John the Beloved covered this same subject where he said in John 1, 12 to 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to what? To become sons and daughters of God or children of God. To those who believe in his name, there's faith, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's regeneration or being born again. Now, I find it a bit curious how often we hear this, and sadly we hear it by Christians too. I saw somebody just on social media was making their case, and we need to remember we're all God's children. No, we're not. If you're God's child, you don't need to be adopted. Right? So that's why we pause for a moment. John said as many as received him to them. There's an exclusivity. He gave the right to what? Become. Does that not imply that in an unregenerate state you're not God's child? 
and you need to be born again. And this is why Paul would twice call the Galatians foolish. Why would anyone want to go back from being a rightful heir to a slave with none of the authority and privileges that come with being God's child? Now, there are belief systems today some of which claim to be Christian, that want to pair up works with salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ's blood alone, and all of it is foolishness. You can't work your way into heaven. How can you have the joy of the Lord? How can you live this life with expectancy of Christ coming for you and looking for and hastening toward his glorious appearing as our great God and Savior Jesus Christ if you don't know that you've done enough to earn your way in. It is a biblical impossibility. What we have has to be received as a gift in order for us to have confidence in it. Listen, I don't want to wait until I stand before God and have him in the great balancer scale weigh my good uh, deeds against my bad deeds. I already know which side's going to be heavier in that uh, weighing process. And so do you. Don't be laughing at me. So do you. Now, the fact is, what Paul is saying, this is like going back under the tutor when you've been publicly declared to be an heir of the king of kings, not an error, an heir. Now, listen, when we come to Christ, here's the best thing you're going to hear all day. No matter what we were before, when we come to, come to Christ, no matter what we were before, here's what the after picture looks like. Listen this morning. All the power and privileges of being in God's family become ours. No matter what we were before, after we've been adopted through the blood of Christ and faith in Him, all the power and privileges of being in God's family become ours. And Paul mentions the before adoption life as being in bondage to the elements of the world. Now, this is a debated topic, and I think there's some good and valid interpretations. Some say this is referring to the law, since that's the subject that Paul has been dealing with. Others say it's a reference to immoral and idolatrous living. And another way for us to look at this is through the lens of pagan idolatry in the world, because the world elements can be interpreted, like the Revised Standard Version translated, translates it, the elemental spirits of the universe. Now what that means is this, pagan deities in the ancient world were often associated with physical elements, earth, fire, air, and water, or the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and the stars, which control the seasonal festivals observed on the earth by pagan religions. Think about Baal. We're all familiar with Baal, right? You know what his name means? The god of storms. And this is what Paul potentially is talking about. It also fits well with verse 8 where he said we were in bondage to beings that by nature are not gods. How many gods are there? One. There is one God and he is the true and living God manifested in three distinct personages. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, whatever the proper interpretation may be, the end result is the same. Before, we were in bondage to things that aren't God. 
namely demons or evil spirits, because the idols all had some type of demonic force behind it. And the truth is, when we have been given the afterlife of power and privileges as part of God's family, to go back to things which are not God is simply foolish. And in Ephesians 4, 20 to 24, Paul says this, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off your former conduct. There's the before. The old man, that's not speaking about your husband, ladies, that's talking about your old nature too, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed, here's the afterlife, in the spirit of your what? Mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God. Aren't you glad in Christ Jesus we are new creations and the before life has passed away and all things have been made new. What's it look like? It's in true righteousness and holiness, Paul would go on to say in Ephesians 4.24. Now, one thing we need to recognize from what we just read is that Jesus taught repentance and personal transformation as part of the adoption package, so to speak. Things that are corrupt and lust-based are going to be replaced with a renewed spirit and a new person who seeks after righteousness and holiness. How many know that's true today? Are you different than you used to be? Yes. We all should be, and we all should be thankful for that. Amen? Yes. Some more radically than others, but God changes all of us when he adopts us and makes us into heirs and not those who are under the tutorship of someone that is a servant themselves. Now, why put yourself back under the authority of things that no longer have power over you? Listen, I cut through, I was at the grocery store the other day, and I just had a, I had a flashback. Some of you know what a flashback is, right? I, I, was, just, I was taking a shortcut, and I didn't even realize I was walking through the wine section. Well, two thoughts came to mind. The first one was, I hope I don't run into anybody from church. <laughs> And the second one was, this stuff has no power over me. I can walk through here all day long, and there is zero temptation to these things that once used to own me. All old things passed away, all things became new. Before we were in Christ, we were slaves to sin. After being adopted through Christ, we have power over sin, and all the privileges of being part of God's family are now ours. Why? because we're heirs through Christ Jesus. Now, Paul moves from illustration to application, picking it up again in verses 6 and 7. He says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through who? Through Christ. Now, the word translated because can also be translated since, and maybe that makes a little more sense to us uh, within this context. It better suits the reality of stating that something is past tense. It's already happened. Since we are now sons, since we have now been adopted. Now, ladies, let me inform you that the word, the Greek word translated as sons, is the word for offspring. So it's all inclusive, it includes you as well. Aren't you glad for that this morning? Amen. Now, 
God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. I'm just going to leave that there for a minute. That's some good stuff. God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, meaning our thoughts and feelings. It's not the, the organ that keeps your body pumping and filled with blood, but rather the very seat of our emotions, the seat of our thoughts, the seat of our feelings. God put his son there. That's why the Lord can change the desires of our hearts. That's why we can walk in newness of life. That's why we don't return like a dog does to its vomit to eat things that made us sick in the first place. That's what God has done for us. He put the spirit of his son in the seat of our thoughts and emotions. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 to 16, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? Foolishness to him. Listen now. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Does God have any counselors? No. no, of course not. But we, as adopted heirs, have the mind of who? The mind of Christ. Now this gives us another before and after shot of the afterlife. Before Christ, we're spiritually dead, unable to understand the things of God. After Christ, we are filled with the Spirit able to discern good and evil and have the mind of Christ. And since we are God's children through Christ, and since we have the spirit of his son in our hearts, we are free to live like he's our father. Amen. As a matter of fact, Paul says, even to the point of crying out, Abba, Papa. Now I want you to consider what a radical thing this is to any listening Jew. Remember the Jews would not even write the name of God when they were transmitting scripture. The copyist was writing scripture by hand whenever they would come to the name of the Father. And you know, we call him Jehovah. But actually in the Hebrew, all we have is what's called the tetragrammaton. It's four consonants, Y-H. WH, so we've made the assumption that there's an A and an E that goes in there, so we call them Yahweh, but they had such a respect for the Word of God, every time they would write it, they would leave out the vowels and go and take a bath, change their garments before they would come back and write it again, and if they ran across the name of God in the same verse, they would repeat that process because they had that respect and awe for the name of God, and Paul says, you know what? we can call him Papa. Amen. Amen. That's what Jesus has done for us. We can come to him as a child would their father and call him Papa. And he even says you can cry out to him, Abba, Papa, Father. Now Paul says since you are sons, you're not slaves, but rather you're offspring through adoption. You are an heir of God through Christ. This is a really good passage this morning. I don't know if you're picking up on that. But remember Hebrews 11:7. after being told it's impossible to please God without faith, we're given the illustration through the man Noah. By faith, Noah, 
being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became what? An heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Without faith, verse 6 said, it's impossible to please God. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and because of the Lord's warning, Noah took action and prepared an ark and became an heir of righteousness by faith. In other words, he acted upon what God had said to him. He believed God, and he was rewarded for that belief. Now, here's the second truth about the afterlife. Listen this morning. This is another wonderful reminder for us all. Because we have been born again, because we have been adopted through Christ Jesus by the Father and can call him Papa, we have direct access to the throne room of God. We have direct access to the throne room of God. Now, here's why I think this is important. Just think this through. Think about how many mortals there are mere human beings, messed up people that you can't get close to because you're not important enough in their mind. Come on, think about it. Uh, can you just go see anybody? Think about these goofballs in Hollywood. They walk around with all these bodyguards because they want to keep people away from them and you can't get close to them. Why? Because you're not important enough. Think about that this morning. We, through Jesus, have accimited, uh, unlimited, that's a combination of access and unlimited. <laughs> unlimited and free access to the God of all the universe because we become his children. And we can call him Papa. Now, Romans 8, 12 to 17 says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the offspring again. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Papa, Papa Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if we're His children, we are heirs. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Amen. What do we have there in Romans 8? Before and after elements. We see living according to the flesh and dying, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and living again, in one, living forever, I should say, led by the Spirit of God. Having received the adoption, we call God our Father because we are His children. Amen. Now, as a child, we don't need to make an appointment to see Him. We aren't withheld access because we're not important enough, as is true with some mere mortal human beings. Now, Listen, I have to say, my doctor is a wonderful Christian woman, and she is a personal friend as well. And she has taken care of my family for well over 20 years now. We love her and appreciate her greatly, but I've still got to make an appointment <laughs> to go see her, right? You know, I could call the White House and say, I'm going to be there at 2 o'clock tomorrow. And I would be met, but not by the president, right? Wouldn't even make it inside the door when I got there. 
But think about this, Hebrews 4, 4 to, uh, to 6, 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, in case you're wondering who our great high priest is, it's Jesus, the Son of God. Yeah. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without what? Sin. Sin. Okay, because he is our high priest, he is the Son of God. We've been adopted by the Father through him. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. And that doesn't mean rudely. That doesn't mean obstinately. That doesn't mean demandingly. That means with confidence that you have a right to be there. That we may obtain mercy. Who needs mercy? And grace to help. Who needs grace to help? Who's in a time of need? Well, if you're not today, you're going to be. We're all in those seasons once in a while. Amen? Amen. Now, many of us are familiar with the repeated phrase in Revelation, Metahelta, after these things, right? Yes. You see that repeated over and over and over in the Greek in the book of Revelation. Well, the same word translated as after, meta, is translated boldly here in Hebrews chapter 4, 16. And what that means is that after the sinless Christ became our great high priest, we can come to the throne of grace and find God, our Papa, to be a present help in time of need. Amen. Hang on. No appointment necessary. Amen. And no one is turned away for not being important enough. Amen. Now, I'm starting to think that the afterlife is way better than the former life. What say you? Let's wrap it up in 8 through 11, and I'll let you go. Verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which were by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons of years, and Paul says, I'm afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. Now, Paul makes his case in simple, clear terms. You didn't know God, now you know God. And he acknowledges you. That's what being known by God means, that God acknowledges you as his child. And then he asks this question by implication, exactly what role did the things that you now want to return to play in your adoption process? establishing that relationship that you now enjoy. How did things that are not God's lead you to Christ? That you now deem to be essential to the continuance of your relationship with God, so much so that you return to them and the bondage that they bring. And he equates their actions to saying, I once was a slave, but I became a son and an heir, but I like being a slave better. Does that make any sense? No. Listen, the Judaizers had convinced them to follow the calendar of Sabbaths and feast days, and Paul describes this as weak. Why? Because the law offered no power to the observer, only condemnation. He calls it beggarly, which means it had no inheritance attached to keeping it. And in Romans 8.3, he says what the law could not do in that it was what? Weak. weak. Through the flesh, God did, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And what the Galatians were returning to were rituals and observances whose purpose had been fulfilled by Christ. And what the law couldn't do, 
Christ did. And they were saved by faith in Christ, not observant to the law. Now, Paul makes a clearly heartbroken, yet to a degree, chilling statement in verse 11, where he says, and I'm paraphrasing, I wonder if all I did was waste my time when I taught you. Now, listen, the afterlife is the life of sons and daughters. It's not the life of slaves. What the afterlife is not is bondage to the law, as if our, if our salvation hung in the balance and depended upon our adherence or obedience to the letter. And since our salvation rests on the finished work of Christ on the cross, on his sin-bearing, curse-bearing death that we embrace by faith, we can mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and practically live out the balance of our lives as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Yeah. And simply put, the way to live the afterlife is to remember who and what we are. We were slaves, now we're heirs. So why would we revert to the old slavery? And this plea that he makes in verse 11 is from the perspective of indignant astonishment. I think we could understand what Paul was feeling if we thought about this. Have you ever known someone to do something that was so stupid and obviously harmful to them and or others you couldn't just understand why in the world did you do that? Anybody else been there? Anybody else watch somebody do something that obviously was destined for failure or harm? And this is where Paul is. He's saying, I can't believe it. Why, when God handed you through adoption, sonship, and becoming an heir, would you want to go back under tutelage? God has done, or Paul has done everything he can to draw a contrast between the old life and the afterlife. And therefore, we can summarize Paul's efforts and all we've studied this morning through one simple point. Here's the last of our three. Listen this morning. The afterlife is ours through what was done for us, not by us. Amen. The afterlife is ours through what was done for us, not by us. And this is what Paul is trying to drive home to the Galatians. The adoption of sons of the king was an act exclusively under God's control. At the appointed time, God sent his son into the world to do for man what the law could never do, which is save his soul, make sons and daughters his children, and therefore heirs to all he has, all the power and benefits of knowing him and being part of his family. Now, Romans 5, 12 to 16, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. That's right. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who said, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift came from many offenses resulting in justification. Now, 
all of that, let me unravel all that for you in one simple statement. The blood of Jesus is more powerful than all sin. Now, but I do want to draw your attention to something which I've always found to be stunning. I want you to consider that one sin, one sin, say one sin. One sin, one sin killed every human who was ever born. One sin killed every human who was ever born. Except for one generation that's going to be translated in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Yet the law was still killing us, but we're going to be rescued and supernaturally translated maybe later today. You good with that? It's possible, right? Not date setting, but it's possible just like it was yesterday. It will be tomorrow if there is a tomorrow. But here's the point. So many Christians toy with it like it's harmless. That's right. Like it really can't hurt them. Yet it killed every human. One, questioning the word of God at that. Wow. One sin killed every human ever born. And yet we treat it like it's not a serpent. That's right. We treat it like it's something that we can be comfortable with or change our proximity to and, and get close to us without having uh, any concern about the experience of the bondage that it can yeah. create and damage it can cause. And Paul, it sure got quiet in here all of a sudden. Now, Paul establishes in Romans another contrast between the sin of Adam and its consequences and the blood of Christ and its benefits, namely the free gift of our justification, which came through Christ. So I want to close with a bit of doctrinal housekeeping. I knew you were waiting for that portion of the sermon. Now, here's what's critical. Paul wasn't saying the Galatians lost their salvation. How do we know that? Because he just said in 326, for you are all sons of God through what? Faith. faith in Christ Jesus. Now the point is this. The Galatians were saved by faith in Christ and they were trying to live the afterlife under the law. Didn't make any sense to Paul. And if someone believes they are saved by adherence to the law or any other, other standards and practices established by their particular religious system, they're not saved because those things can't save even the law that God created himself couldn't save anybody because no one could keep it, right? right? So we have to be justified by faith. We're saved by what was done for us, not by us. You don't have to stand on a corner and sell magazines. Right. You don't have to ride a bike and knock on doors and wear a white shirt and a tie and a badge. You don't have to do all those things in order to earn your way into heaven. All of those efforts are foolish and all of them are futile. Are you here this morning? Yes. Why? Because we're saved by what was done for us, not by us. Yes. Now, this is an important point to conclude with because there are Christians all over the world who are putting themselves in bondage to things the blood of Christ set them free from. Now, in John 8, 33 to 36, the Jews, we covered this two weeks ago, answered Jesus saying, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits, a sin, commits sin is a slave of sin. He was telling the Jews they're sinners. They weren't saved by their first birth. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, the Pharisees made a lot of stupid statements recorded in Scripture. That's just, I'm paraphrasing, errant to stupid, because they were stupid, right? Yeah. 
They made stupid statements. They misinterpreted. But this one takes the cake. We are Abraham's descendants and has never been in bondage to anyone. What do you call 400 years of Egyptian bondage? What do you call 70 years of Babylonian captivity? What do you call being under the dominance of the Roman Empire at the very moment they made that statement? And yet there's people today who say, you know what, sin's not ruling over me. I can toy with it. I can play with it. I can dabble with it. It doesn't own me. And listen, we need to remember, when we come to faith in Christ, all that we are trusting in and experiences, experiencing hangs on one statement he made from the cross. To tell us that. It is finished. That means by faith, listen, that means by faith, we're free from everything that he went to the cross for. Amen. He finished the separation from sinful past and redeemed us unto the Father, which was the result of the separation that sin caused, and then allowed us to say, Papa, I need grace to help in this time of need. That means, listen, Everything that once held us captive, Jesus has set us free from. That can be the dead works of false religion. That can be the lust of the flesh and carnality. And listen this morning, we shouldn't go back to any of those things in the afterlife because we are free indeed. Somebody say amen. Father, again, we are grateful for your word this morning. We thank you for this beautiful portrait uh, painted for us, Lord, with a little investigation. We can understand it better through the eyes of Roman culture and how significant this act is to bring us out from under all that condemned us and bring us into your house as a rightful child and therefore heir through Christ Jesus. So, Lord, we are grateful. We ask you have mercy on us, and we ask you help us for all the times we return to things that you've freed us from and put ourselves in a dangerous proximity to them, not a danger of losing our salvation, but a danger of damaging our witness, killing the joy of our salvation, harming our own reputation, all the other things that come along with these things that you died to set us free from. So, Lord, help us in that. And we thank you that we can come to you with that familial element that Paul introduced to us today and even say, Papa, I need your help. And thank you, Lord, for the, the veil being rent, symbolizing the fact that we don't need to wait our turn. We don't need to make an appointment. We don't need to wait till you have time for us. We don't need to become important enough for you to see us like a child runs into their father's study or arms or office or whatever it may be, Lord, we can come to you because you are our father. We thank you for the gift that came to us through Jesus Christ and how we have now become joint heirs with him. Help us, Lord, not to return to bondage and foolish things. It may not take away our salvation. But don't do us any good either. Help us to remember the words of Paul. That all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. So help us to stay away from unhelpful things as heirs. 
made free from all these things by the finished work of Christ. We give you thanks. We pray for our state. We pray for our country. We pray for the Electoral College vote tomorrow. Lord, we pray that it is done in truth. And we pray, Lord, you said in your word that differing weights are an abomination to you. You are against cheating. So we pray, God, you expose any cheating that may have taken place. It seems like the evidence is there, but you know far better than we. So, Lord, we pray you not allow cheating to prevail in this election. And for facts and truth to be what comes to pass tomorrow, Lord. So we pray these things with hope for our country and with love of country, Lord, even as the Jews love their nation, so too we love ours. But God, we say we love you more and we're glad that we're heirs. So we bless your holy name. We pray for our country in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.